Welcome to the Fromer Travel Show. I'm your host, Pauline Fromer, and I'm coming to you today from downtown Phoenix, Arizona. I'm here to appear at the Phoenix Travel and Adventure Show. Really excited about that because this is actually the first time Phoenix has had this show. So excited to meet a lot of new travelers. I find that the questions are different depending on what part of the country I'm in. So I I really want to find out what's on the Southwest's mind when it comes to travel. And I got to admit, I'm also really excited to dine out while I'm here. I am, and I'm a little embarrassed to say this, I'm a foodie. I love trying new restaurants. I cook a lot at home. So I like to try and deconstruct what's on the plate in front of me, see how I might cook it when I get back to my home kitchen. And it looks like the hot specialty here in Phoenix is food from the Mexican region of Sonora. So I'm going to be trying two restaurants with that type of specialty while I'm here. And I'm bringing this up because today's show is all about food and travel. My second guest is Gwen Pratizi. She wrote a terrific article for us on Fromers.com. It's called Dining on a Cruise, the 10 Best Tips and Tricks. But we're going to start today by talking with longtime editor, writer, and all-around good guy, John Douglas, who has done a deep dive into regional American cuisine. All right, let's get started. It's fun to try new foods on vacation, and you can do so with the help of a really fascinating new book. It's called 500 Ways to Eat Like a Local, A Traveler's Guide to the Regional Foods of the United States. I have the author, John Douglas, on the line. Hey, John, nice to speak with you. Thanks for this great read. Well, thanks so much for having me. It's it's a pleasure to be here. So... How much weight did you gain uh, in researching this book? This must have been so much fun to dig into. Well, I always love to eat when I travel. And, you know, I wrote this guide because there really wasn't anything else like it out there. I'm always looking for suggestions for where to eat local foods. Okay, but I got to stop you there. Okay. Recently, I had a guest on this show. Her name was Anya von Bremsen. She wrote a book called National Dish, which was kind of about the idea that uh, to call certain foods regional or national wasn't always correct, because often you will find things like, I don't know, kebabs or stuffed grape leaves in many different places. Uh, Do you deal with that in this book? Well, absolutely. The idea of regional food, it's, it's very messy. Yeah, um, But there are certain foods that are really connected to a place's history. And then there are foods that cross boundaries and borders, and you'll find them in, in many places as the food changes over time. Huh. So one good example of the latter is Detroit-style pizza. It's a mm. really trendy style right now. It started yeah. in Detroit, but you'll find it uh, in almost every major city. But that doesn't mean it doesn't have this great historical connection to Detroit, where it's actually created because uh, the people who made it used the blue trays that car makers used to hold their auto parts in. And that's why it's a characteristically deep dish style. You know, I got to tell you, I I, uh, just finished researching the restaurants for my upcoming New York City book. 
And there were five great new Detroit-style pizza places here. And you're right. It's this really luscious style of deep dish pizza. Um, we'll get into other things, other types of food in the book, but let's talk pizza because you concentrate on that in the book. You have like eight or nine different styles, one of which was called atrocious, I believe. Well, <laughs> I didn't call it that, but yeah, yeah, lots of people call lots of people call Altoona, Pennsylvania uh, style pizza atrocious. Instead of using mozzarella cheese, which is more common, uh, Altoona style pizza uses processed American cheese and then Ew. tops the pizza with green pepper rings and salami. So not my first choice for, for pizza to try. There was another type of pizza that you talk about where they put on some of the cheese after it's been cooked. So they put cold cheese on top of the hot pizza. Do you know which one that is? Yeah, that's in the Ohio Valley. So it's a very, very hyper-local style of pizza. You'd have to go to like Steubenville, Ohio to find it. But yeah, it's also baked in trays, but then the cold toppings are put on top of the pizza after it comes out of the oven. It's so odd to me. I guess some people like that hot, cold thing. And then there's another pizza that's more like a cracker, right? A cracker. Um, Is that St. Louis style? Oh, St. Louis style, of course, yes. The very thin crust style pizza. I really enjoy thin crust style pizza myself. You know, people talk about Chicago style pizza as being atrocious, I think, it was John Stewart, the comedian, who famously called it a casserole. But there are actually <laughs> four distinct styles of pizza that you'll find in Chicago. And one of them is a thin crust pizza. It's often called uh, tavern style. It's similar, but not quite the same thing as the St. Louis style you were just talking about. Yeah, very interesting. So you have all of these different styles of pizza. And you have many different types of food that came to be in different parts of the country in different ways. Like some foods, you say in the book, were invented by food professionals, uh, sometimes at expensive hotels or, or fancy restaurants. What would be two good examples of dishes that came into being that way? Well, I'd say um, Boston cream pie is a good example of that. That was created a pastry chef at the Parker House Hotel in Boston. And that's also a place that was famous for the Parker House rolls that you'll sometimes mm. see around the country. Oh, um, I love it. Yeah. And then uh, there's a restaurant called Delmonico's in New York City uh, that's famous for inventing a whole bunch of different dishes, including Eggs Benedict. And Eggs Benedict is one of those dishes that people aren't exactly sure where it was invented. It likely came from Delmonico's. There's a bunch of different theories about it. But it, it almost certainly came from New York City, which in the late 19th, early 20th century was a lot of where this, uh, these, these um, famous dishes came from. And some of the foods in your book were created because immigrants came to certain parts of the country. And, and so they reflect immigration patterns. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. I, I would say that regional food is really the story of America. Now, let's just look at the Midwest for a second. It's one place that, like many in the U.S., is really a melting pot of different countries. So you see dishes that came from German cultures. So you see German-inspired dishes like the Geta in sausage, uh, which is a sausage in Cincinnati. You see beer brats in Wisconsin. 
Um, in Chicago and St. Louis, you see a lot of Italian dishes. In Minnesota, you see uh, Scandinavian dishes like the Norwegian flatbread called lefse. Uh, even in South Dakota, you see kolaches, which are a Czech pastry. Huh. And then something that was absolutely fascinating to me in Kansas and Nebraska and North Dakota, there are several dishes that were adapted from the cuisine of the Russian Germans who came to the U.S., in the 1870s. And so you see things like a meat pie called in different places, either a birok or a runza. And then there's a dumpling soup in North Dakota called knepfla. Uh, of all these, what's the tastiest? Do you have a Oh favorite? my goodness. I, I <laughs> certainly love an Italian beef sandwich. Whenever I get to Chicago, I'm always seeking those out. And uh, listeners may know that those are particularly popular these days because of that show, The Bear, if anyone saw that uh, Emmy-winning show. Yeah, yeah. I also love the fact that you kind of ferreted out the fact that certain foods that have really, really colorful legends around them were actually, those legends were just marketing ploys. Like the, uh, where is it? The, the Frito pie. <laughs> Tell us about that and the key lime pie. Yeah, this is so interesting. So many popular dishes have these legends around them that are almost certainly not true. So Frito pie was said to be invented by the mother of the person who invented Fritos. And then later it was said to be invented by someone at a Woolworths counter, um, I believe, in, in Texas. But it was actually most likely invented by the Frito-Lay Corporation, uh, and first appeared as a recipe in a 1950s corporate cookbook. Huh. Um, and similarly, Key Lime Pie, there's a wonderful story about a woman named Aunt Sally who adapted the local sponge fisherman's tradition of moistening stale bread. But actually, the Key Lime Pie probably was an adaptation of a magic lemon pie that uh, was something that the Borden company was using to try to sell more condensed milk. And you see these stories all the time. People love to tell stories about food and where it came from. And, you know, this is not just in the U.S. It's not in my book, but I was reading last week about the big debate in India right now. There's actually a court case going on where two competing families are arguing about who actually invented butter chicken. Um, so these stories about, you know, where food comes from are so widely disputed in many cases. There really isn't great evidence around many of these dishes, but it makes for a fascinating thing to talk about. And, you know, when you learn a little bit about the history of a food, I think it makes you more connected to a place. And most of the time you can be confident that history is actually true. Once in a while, you'll hear some of these apocryphal stories that, you know, are great legends around a dish, but probably aren't true. Well, you, you do say that a lot of the dishes people think of as Southern, well, not a lot, but certain ones really aren't, right? Can you give us some examples of those? Well, that was one of the most surprising things I learned uh, while I was researching my book. We think of a lot of different foods as Southern, but so many of them were not actually invented in the South. So red velvet cake has such a complicated history but as far as I can tell, it became popular in the South after a man who actually ran an extract company uh, had a slice of the cake uh, at the Waldorf Astoria Hotel in New York City and then began promoting red velvet cake 
uh, in an effort to sell more of his red food coloring. Banana pudding is another good one. Banana pudding is something that we think of as quintessentially South. But actually, in the middle part of the 20th century, Nabisco had the recipe for banana pudding on its boxes of vanilla wafers. And then it was only after the Jell-O company started uh, marketing its banana cream flavored pudding in the 1960s that it became identified with the South. Interesting. Um, yeah, I'll give well, you one more example, if, if I can, which sure. is a hummingbird cake. This is such a delicious cake with pineapple in it, but it's probably invented in, in Jamaica and then just appeared in a Southern magazine. And then everyone thinks of hummingbird cake as something that came from the South. Interesting. But there are certain foods that come from the South, especially that culinary capital known as New Orleans. And what fascinated me about your book was all of the different ways that oysters are served in New Orleans. I had no idea. And with the oyster loaf in particular, there's a funny story about, uh, it's called the, the peace, uh, what is it, the peace offering? Or, or tell us about oyster loaf. The peacemaker. Yeah, that's such a great it's dish. And I actually got to try one when I was in New Orleans last year at a place called Casamentos, which is famous for its raw oysters but also for its oyster loaves and loaves made with other types of seafood. So you basically take a, a baguette and you hollow it out and you stuff it with oysters. It's kind of similar to a po' boy. It uses the same uh, toppings like lettuce and mayonnaise and tomato. It's called dressed, but uh, the oyster loaf, when it's hollowed out, uh, is what makes it uh, distinctive. And yeah, it's called a, a peacemaker. That's a, a term that is actually used in a, a couple different ways. Sometimes a peacemaker is a po' boy with two different toppings at once. And the idea is if you can't decide what to order, you order both and that way you can make peace with yourself. But in the oyster loaf context, the story again, probably apocryphal, is that it was a sandwich that was created to sort of make peace after uh, um, staying out too late, that someone brought it home uh, as an apology for staying out too late. It was a, a peacemaker sandwich. That's very funny. Wow. All right. I'm going to put you on the spot. If you could travel to any region to eat something that you write up in the book, where would you go? I mean, would it be New Orleans or would it be somewhere else? I mean, I could never get tired of, of visiting New Orleans. I've probably been there half a dozen times. And every time I go, the food is just better and better and better. I mean, you have your po'boys, your beignets, your muffalettas. Those are all, you know, the sort of very famous dishes. But you also have oysters in so many different preparations, uh, red beans and rice, which is a dish that's famously eaten on Mondays in New Orleans, because that's the day that uh, traditionally laundry was done. And so people would put a big pot of red beans and rice on the stove while the laundry was, uh, uh, was being washed. There's wow. pralines, uh, which are yeah. sort of a, a pecan candy that's famous in New Orleans. There's so much great food there. So I would go back to New Orleans in a minute. I love New York City. I can't get enough of the iconic bagels, the pastrami, the egg creams. You know, all those dishes trace their ancestry back to the Jewish immigration in the late 19th century and early 20th century. But then I've discovered some other things that I love eating in New York. Uh, the black and white cookie, of course. Uh -huh. uh, the chopped cheese sandwich. That's a really interesting one. It comes from... 
uh, bodegas in in Harlem, and it's spread across the city. But that's sort of a, a chopped up hamburger served on a a sort of long baguette roll. Yeah. Well, you you I'm in New York. I may have to go out now and eat one of those. Thank you so so much, John. It's been a delight both speaking to you and reading the book. Well, thanks so much. It's a pleasure talking with you. And yeah, there's so many places to uh, to eat in the book. I have. I think almost 2,000 restaurant suggestions. And so there's so much to seek out wherever you're traveling in the U.S. Definitely. Thank you. Thanks, Pauline. So cruising is supposed to be a dummy proof vacation activity. The reputation is you can just get on board without planning, and have a wonderful vacation. But the truth is, those who plan a little bit, those who strategize, are going to have a better time, especially if they are foodies. We have Gwen Pertizzi on the line. She just wrote a terrific article on Fromers.com on just this subject. Hey, Gwen, so happy to have you on the Fromers Travel Show. Thank you for having me. I'm very excited to be here. So uh, before we get to the strategies, let's talk about something that may surprise people. You say in the article that sometimes you'll eat better on board ships than you will on land. I've never found that to be the case, but I got to admit it's probably been a good eight or nine years since I've last cruised. So have things really changed? Yes, uh, things have definitely changed. Um, What you had actually mentioned earlier about, you know, just being able to get on board a ship and have a great time. I think that has changed too, because you, it's so confusing now. Uh, There's so much that you have to know about, especially dining, uh, beverage packages, you know, if you want to have alcoholic or even non-alcoholic drinks. Um, There's, it's just not like years ago when I first cruised many years ago, uh, it was just, it was easy because there, there was none of the specialty dining, Drinks were actually very inexpensive back then. Now, I mean, you know, some of these cocktails are 20 plus dollars. So I was the Wall Street Journal had a review of Icon of the Seas, and they were talking about the fact that the drink packages, I think for a week, was $1,400. I mean, my goodness, that's a lot of cocktails. Yeah, it's very expensive. But I do think, especially now with some of the restaurants, there's, you know, there's a lot of um, celebrity chefs involved. There's a lot of, you know, uh, like the new ship Explorer Journeys that is uh, under the MSC Cruises umbrella. Right. They have an, a, res- a, a restaurant on board called Anthology, and they partner with Michelin star chefs over a period of so many months, and they create the menus. And actually, when I was on board the ship, um, the woman from New York City, she was just nominated for a James Beard Award. So, huh? you know, there are a lot of just really phenomenal restaurants like Enchante on Disney Cruises. Mm. Um, you know, there's a, there's a long list. You've got Daniel Ballou doing restaurants on board Celebrity. Wow. Um, you know, it's it's very impressive. Morimoto, I think now is is uh, partnering, with, I believe it's Holland America with a sustainable huh. seafood. Um, so oh, sure. it's it's um, it's very impressive, really, what's going on, you know, on the ships now. Yeah, definitely. And what also surprised me was there are sometimes discounts for packages that allow you to go to these specialty restaurants. I didn't know that. So where does one find those? 
Well, you can usually get a package, you know, before you get on board the ship. Sometimes it will be discounted. Uh, sometimes not. If you don't, you know, do it ahead of time. A lot of times, once you're on the ship, you'll find deals. Sometimes I'll offer discounted um, dining. I think I mentioned in the article, sometimes a bottle of wine, whether oh. it's free or half price. So there's there's a lot of different ways. Um, also, if you're booking through a travel agent, a lot of times, depending who it is, they'll have special promotions with hmm. some of the lines and they can maybe offer you something that you can't get on your own. Very quickly, I often say that for cruises, it often is a good idea to book through a travel agent because the real specialists will have access to deals, to free upgrades, to all kinds of things that you're not going to get if you book directly with the cruise line. Is that still correct? Yes, I'd say so. And then plus it's because it's so complicated now, I think it, you know, if you don't really know what you're doing, you right. can really make a mistake booking. I mean, people, I've seen articles where something as simple as booking the wrong date, you know, the wrong year, the wrong month, whatever, you know, it's easy to make a mistake when you're doing all of that online. And especially when there's so much that you have to select if right. you're going to do a lot of this pre-booking stuff. So I think it's helpful if you have somebody that understands, you know, what you're looking for and that they can assist you and and perhaps even get you some better deals. Right. Um, another way that you get more specialty dining a lot of times is if you have like a suite level stateroom or concierge level, you're going to get more access to more nights in a huh. restaurant. Like even on some of the um, luxury lines, you're still limited. If you're in a regular you know, suite, a regular stateroom, which is still lovely, but you're limited to so many nights of dining in huh. some of the specialty restaurants, depending if that's what you're interested in. Yeah. And so that's where the strategy comes in. You say to look at the main dining room's menu before you get on board. Why do you do that? Because if there's an evening, like I had mentioned, the lobster night, a lot of people are really into lobster night, you know, and ordering <laughs> surf and turf. And that's kind of the highlight, if, especially if it's a dress up night. And, you know, a lot of people still want to do that. So I would say, look, if you can find the menus ahead of time and then plan your specialty dining around that, because you sure don't want to miss if there's something really lovely on the menu that you want to try you don't want to miss that and then go pay to eat somewhere else when you could right. have had a meal that's already included. Yeah, absolutely. And you say, do not go to the buffet on the day of embarkation. Why is that? Because everybody's going there, um, especially <laughs> if there's, you know, there's always a lot of first time cruisers on board the ship and that's their first you know, thing. They're just going to go to the buffet typically because it's easy. Um, you can get a selection of nearly everything you'd ever want but it is going to be crowded and a lot of people are going to have their luggage because they can't get in their stateroom. So it's kind of, um, you know, chaotic. Uh, if you can go sit down somewhere or just grab something quickly, right. I think, it, you know, it's just a more relaxing way to kind of start your vacation. Speaking of buffets, you say that on some ships, uh, there's a new concept in buffets. Tell us about that. A lot of times now there are they, they're calling them stations. Hmm. And, you know, on a lot of ships, um, you're not serving yourself now either. Huh. Um, you, you are, you know, there's someone behind the, the plexiglass or just on the other side, you know, serving you, which of course I prefer because I think obviously it's just safer as far as, you know, handling food. Did that come out of the pandemic? Um, 
yeah, a lot of people have changed, but then there was some of that before too. Um, Uh So it just, it just depends, but I'm seeing more of it, but there are really more now food stations. So there'll be like one area where it's just bread or one area where it's just salad. And a lot of times now they'll make the salad for you. So Uh if you want a salad bar, you know, for the, for lunch or whatever, they'll, they'll put it all in and mix it up and hand it to you. So you're not you know, sitting there with tongs, digging so, through the buffet, which so is, it feels more like a food court then. Yes, I exactly. Think, than a and buffet. then there are really food courts now as well. On Norwegian's two new ships, Prima and Viva, they've got Indulge Food Hall, which I mentioned, which is a really cool concept. You sit down and order, you know, on a on a tablet. And you can order as much as you want from any of the different stations. And, and many of them are internationally inspired. There's also barbecue. There's also a salad salad venue. But you can order all of this stuff and your beverages, and they bring it to you. Huh. So you're not this even is all in, This is all included in yes. the price. This yes. is not specialty dining. No. So you don't have to even go up and order your food. It's, you know, it's weight service. They literally will bring you everything and it's very quick. So if you're, you know, if you're in a time crunch and you want to have a quick lunch or dinner um, and they also have breakfast up there too, it's, it's not, you know, it's like, it's not like going into the dining room and having a long meal, they bring it to you very quickly. So, you know, it's similar to doing the buffet or the food stations. Yeah. A lot, a lot of the, um, what they used to call buffets, they're calling them on uh, the Explorer Journeys. It's huh. Emporium Marketplace. So it has a different feel. Like on that ship, they have organic chicken. Now, of course, this is a luxury, this is a luxury cruise line. Sure. But they they literally have fresh pasta that when you order it, they cook it to order. They've got a raw bar that's amazing with oysters and ceviches and sushi. I mean, this is this is all, of course, on that ship. The only thing that's extra is anthology, which I huh. mentioned, which is the partnership with the the fancy chefs that come sure. in, you know, the, the Michelin star chefs, but um, that Emporia marketplace, that's, you know, that's a great venue. In fact, some people told me on the ship that they would go there rather than the standard sit down restaurant. They oh. would go there for dinner because the food was so good. Now let's go back to the main dining room. You made a suggestion that I have never heard before, and I didn't know you could do this in the main dining room. Say you see the menu and you think, oh, I really like the look of that appetizer and that appetizer and that appetizer. You could say to the waiter, I want all three, but smaller portions. I, I didn't know that that you could, you had the right to customize in this way in the main dining room. Yes, you can, uh, if you want a soup, a a salad, an appetizer, um, you know, something else that's in the appetizer category, you know, that's fine. That, that is something that I think people have taken advantage of maybe sometimes over the years. Uh, We talked to one chef years ago on lobster night, literally one, one passenger ordered 13 lobster tails because he could, you know, which is crazy, but if you want them, you can order them. Yeah. Now we started talking with about how expensive uh, drinks on board have gotten. Yes. But you suggest buying a bottle of wine with dinner. Some people might think, I can't finish a bottle of wine. Isn't that a waste? Why is that a good strategy? Well, typically it's going to be less expensive 
Um, huh. Obviously, if if you can get a deal, sometimes they will advertise, you know, discounts on bottles of wine and packages. So for sure, it's going to be less expensive um, than buying buying it by the glass. As I mentioned, you know, the prices on board the ships now are comparable to going out to a restaurant huh. when it comes to alcoholic beverages. Right, um, right. You know, it's not but, uncommon to see $16 glasses of wine. Yeah. So, but you also mentioned, and this I didn't know, if you don't finish that bottle of wine, you'll have the same waiter every night so he can put it away for, me, for you and you can finish it the next night. Yes. Even if you don't have the same waiter, you can, and even if you go to another restaurant, they huh. will save it and you can you know, ask to have it brought to wherever you are that, that next evening. Can you also bring it out onto deck with you and just while away the evening with your bottle? I don't know about on the deck. I guess if you pour <laughs> if you pour the glass in your room and walk around with it, I don't think that's a problem. But huh. uh, yeah, I would take it back take it back to the room. I don't I don't know if that's actually a good question. If you brought your own bottle out and sat on the deck, I don't know if they'd bother you about that or not. I guess it would depend on the ship. Oh well, I, yeah, I guess there could be safety problems with that if the ship yeah. you know lurched and there's broken glass everywhere suddenly. Now speaking about bringing it back to your room, room service. Didn't I read a couple of years ago that certain lines were starting now to charge for room service? Is is that common or or is room service still something that you can do pretty easily and inexpensively? They have over the last few years started to add some charges for some things. I I, I went and I looked, you know, before obviously when I was working on the article to see and and there are some now that will charge just like a delivery fee. Uh-huh. Some items are an upcharge. It pretty much looks like almost all of them will do like a continental breakfast at no charge uh-huh. and deliver it to your room. Um, but they're, it, depending on the line and depending on what you are ordering, there might be some some charge or some fee or a gratuity but still charge. not not too high. Not not, no, not something no. that's gonna break the bank. And if you have a balcony, how wonderful. You get yes. to have a meal on your balcony. Your final suggestion was so insidery. I loved it, which is you know, the 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 crew is from all over the world. You can ask to eat what the crew is eating. And get really, really interesting, maybe more spicy than usual foods, right? Yes, depending again on the ship. But I was on Ama Waterways uh, in Europe this past summer. And one day they had this, it was like an Indian dish, um, very spicy. It was on the menu, but it was it was just so different than everything else because we were pretty much you know, it was like a theme thing with where where we were traveling through, which was, you know, Germany and Austria. So we had a lot of that kind of food. And then all of a sudden, one day there was this dish that just came out of nowhere. And of course, I ordered it because I love that kind of food. And the waiter who knew how much I appreciated the dish that day, he said, hey, we've got this back in the kitchen that we're cooking for ourselves. He huh. said, would you, would you like it? And I said, oh gosh, yes, please. And it was <laughs> fabulous. It was super spicy. So, you know, if they know that you like that kind of food and obviously they're, most of them are from a lot of those Asian countries, you sure. know, Philippines and India and Malaysia, but anyway, they're, they're cooking that stuff for themselves a lot of times. So if they know you like it, um, they're willing to share. Too. Yes. Yeah. Well, it it really was a terrific article. Thank you so much for appearing on the Fromer Travel Show. 
Thank you for having me. And that's it for this week's show. A reminder that next weekend, I will be at the Washington, D.C. Travel and Adventure Show. It's in downtown D.C. If you use the code FROMERSVIP at travelshows.com, you can get a free ticket in advance. And I'd love to meet a lot of podcast listeners there, if possible. That's been one of the joys of the recent weeks. So to those who are traveling, may I wish you a hearty bon voyage, whether or not I'm seeing you at the show. And we'll talk again next week. No